morning to you. For a while, there was a popular bumper sticker that said, if it feels good, do it. Now, the polar opposite was another guy's bumper sticker that said, I do whatever my Rice Krispies tell me to do. Moving from bumper stickers to Canadian rockers, how's that for a segue? Um, I don't know how up you are on your Canadian rock bands, but there's a band named Sloan that won a Juno Award with the following lyrics. If it feels good, do it, even if you shouldn't. Don't let people mess you around. Feels good, do it, even if you shouldn't. Nobody can mess you around. Now, back in 1965, so those of you that aren't up on Sloan might remember the Animals, and they had a number of hits back in the 60s, and they released a song with this as its chorus. Remember, remember, it's my life, and I'll do what I want. Such is the mantra of many. It seems to be the ethos of our cosmos and the chorus of our current culture. The assumption is, it's my life. But the question for the Christian is, is it? We're in our third sermon on this subject, and we find ourselves in the thick of 1 Corinthians 6. So if you would please turn with me in the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find 1 Corinthians 6 on page 1214, and let's continue to discover the answer to the question for the Christian, it's my life, or is it? As you turn in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 6, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite you as Lord of this church to speak to us through your holy word, by your Holy Spirit, to make us a holy people. We ask that your word would be sharper than a two-edged sword, that it would cut down to joint and marrow, dividing even thought and spirit. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to be more and more like Jesus as we realign our thoughts so that we walk in truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and, and the stomach for food, and, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and He will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your, your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have 
from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Why are we investing four Sundays in this particular passage? Because a review of God's counsel to Christians providentially placed in a sex-soaked city in ancient Corinth is a helpful bit of perspective on God's directive for which we should probably be much more reflective in the world we live in today. Friends, the Bible tells us that we must renew our minds if we're going to use our bodies in ways that glorify God in an age where the chorus of voices sing a different tune all together and all the time. So, in our first Sunday together from this passage, we learned this. We need to understand that as believers, we are now temples of the Holy Spirit, and so we ought to glorify God with our bodies, not gratify ourselves by succumbing to our basest instincts. That was our first sermon. We unpacked that in a variety of ways. And then last week, we focused on point two. Point two is this. We need to understand that as believers, we are now temples of the Holy Spirit, and so we ought to glorify God with our bodies and not gratify ourselves. So we've been bought with a price, and we're temples. Those are the two essential elements of those two points. Now, both of those two points come directly from verses 19 and 20. Uh, verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, I want us to back up a little bit in the passage. I want us to go to verses 13 and 14. And we're going to come to point three on our outlines today. Uh, point three is this. We need to understand that our bodies were made for resurrection, not insurrection. Our bodies were not made for insurrection. They were made for resurrection. That's the Lord's purpose for our bodies. It's right there in verse 13. You can't miss it. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and He will also raise us up by His power. Now, someone once said that the Puritans may have lived as though there was no such thing as sex, but our generation thinks the only thing is sex. But friends, the Bible here says that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And then we come to verse 14. And God is going to devote an entire chapter of this book to the subject of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is just on the subject of the resurrection. But the doctrine of the resurrection seems a little bit unexpected in a discussion about sexual immorality, doesn't it? It seems like a weird excursus. But it isn't. Listen in again. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and God will also raise us up by His power. The doctrine of the resurrection is not unexpected if we remember that many in the Corinthian congregation were deficient in their Christian thinking, and so they became deficient in their Christian living. 
if we remember back earlier in chapter 6, some states uh, misunderstood the doctrine of Christian liberty, and they turned it into a license for immorality. We see that in our passage here. In the next chapter, in chapter 7, other brothers misunderstand their eschatology, and it led them to wrongly conclude that sexual intimacy is utterly unnecessary, even between a husband and wife. Because they thought somehow sex belongs to some other age and and we've arrived at the the final stage. Do you remember back in chapter 4, this is a while ago, how the Corinthians had what we called an over-realized eschatology? See, they they, they wrongly believed, some of them, that, that they were fully standing right now in the age to come. They thought, therefore, that the the resurrection was entirely spiritual and not literal and physical. And this is something that Paul will set them straight on by devoting 58 verses in chapter 15 to say, no, 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 friend, the resurrection is also literal and physical and actual, and we're waiting for it to happen. So this, this misunderstanding that's within Corinth, uh, wrongly believing that they stood in a fully realized but only spiritual kind of resurrection, it made certain saints sort of forget that there's going to be a bodily, physical resurrection for the Christian at a later date. Now, since there is a bodily resurrection for the Christian, well, that means the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the the Lord. And the Lord for our bodies. For, as verse 14 tells us, God raised the Lord Jesus. He was the first fruits. And He will also raise us up, those who believe in Jesus, bodily and physically, literally and actually, when that last trumpet sounds. So, So here we're in 1 Corinthians 6. And we have some saints who are saying, well, since it's only a spiritual resurrection, and since we've already attained all this, um, what we do with our bodies is inconsequential. Do you see how their wrong doctrine led to wrong living? And that's how it always is. Wrong thinking, wrong living, the Bible says. So, So here we are, and they're saying what we do with our bodies is inconsequential. To which God's Word says, no, what we do with our bodies is vital. Friends, what we do with our bodies has great significance and indeed great consequence personally, physically, interpersonally, and indeed spiritually. Listen again. Or do you not know, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price So glorify God with your body. So, we need to understand that our bodies are made for resurrection, not insurrection. And that's a core principle that many kind of miss in all this. And that's going to lead us to point four today. Point four. We need to understand that our freedom in Christ frees us to honor Jesus. Not live in bondage to our passage, or our passions. Our freedom in Christ is a freedom that frees us to honor Jesus, not live in bondage 
to our passions. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, the Corinthians are going around saying, I can do what I want. They say it this way, all things are lawful for me. I have freedom as a Christian. All things are lawful for me. And Paul says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. And then they say, but, but all things are lawful for me. And Paul says, yeah, but I won't be dominated by anything. They say food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. So, so I, if I have an urge and a surge, I should do it. And, and, and Paul says, but, but God's going to destroy both one and the other because the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And as God raised up the Lord, God will raise us up by His power. You see, some saints were saying, but we have liberty, don't we? And indeed we do. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians about our liberty. Galatians 5.1 is clear for the Christian and his liberty that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You have liberty in Jesus. But Paul qualifies that our freedom is not freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin. You see, liberty to sin would result in a return to the bondage of slavery and iniquity Christ has liberated us from. See how Satan twists this? Takes the freedom and tries to turn it back into a prison. Which is why Galatians 5.13 declares, You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature Rather, use your freedom to serve one another. It's a freedom to do what God intended, not a freedom to do that which we were released from. Now sadly, there were some Christians there in Corinth, and they were twisting the Scriptures, the doctrine of freedom, into something it wasn't. They were truncating the Gospel of grace, and they were replacing it into a license for sin. They were saying this, since food is made for the stomach and the stomach is made for food, all things are lawful me, I will do as I please. And, and what they mean in this context was this. Uh, they, they meant it this way. If God gave us these sexual appetites, certainly God wants us to use them. And to do less than that is to, is to somehow uh, uh, squash our God-given freedom. Tell me that doesn't sound familiar. Tell me that doesn't sound exactly like many people in 2019 who argue, but I was born this way. God made me this way. If God did not want me to spend an evening pursuing this passion or this person, I would not be having these powerful biological, emotional, biochemical, physiological surges that lead me to urges so that I start to have merges. You with me? In case you're 10, maybe you're not with me. You follow along? <laughs> On the side, okay? Now this philosophy covers a panoply in our society, in modern humanity. From the thirsty teen to the sailor on leave to the, the conventioneer who desperately hopes what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But friends, to acquaint 
to equate any and every personal sexual desire as natural and healthful and, and biblical, much less God-given, that is a powerful lie. Powerful lie. You and I have many urges, but we're not to be slaves to those urges. Let me show you what I mean. My stomach craves gluttony. My Savior calls me to temperance. My, my wallet craves that I be stingy to the needy, but God calls me to generosity. My credit card craves liberality when the spending is on me. But God calls me to prudence in this. My temper craves vengeance. And my Lord whispers forgiveness. You see, what I crave in my fallen flesh and what my Lord calls me to are often divergent. And so the question is, Christian, to which will I be obedient? In this moment, to which will you and I be obedient? Now, some of you are winning Praise God. But did you know yesterday's victory does not make you immune to today's temptation? Now, some of you are losing. Did you know that, that yesterday's failure does not mandate tomorrow's failure? Rather, here's what the Bible says, way back in the Old Testament, that each day you and I must choose this day whom we will serve. And friends, what's true for me is true for you. God's Word teaches that our body is the Lord's. And if we give it over to sin, well then, that sin will destroy us. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Indeed, if we, if we live for sin and reject the only remedy there is to sin, which is forgiveness found through faith in Jesus Christ, then the sin will not only destroy us, but the Bible teaches one day God will be forced to judge us. And the judge of all the earth will always do right. And if we're guilty and not pardoned, we remain guilty and we will suffer. In fact, the Bible gets really, really clear in this matter. If I reject God's offer of peace... That, that is signed and sealed exclusively through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cruel cross at Calvary, then here's what Hebrews 10.26 says. It says if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, we've heard the gospel and we reject it, we don't want to hear anymore, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. I implore you, I don't care how many times you've been to church or been to this church, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Because there are going to be some on that day who have heard and who know. But Jesus says, I do not know you. In that day, there will be some who say, Lord, Lord, their theology is good. And their ministry activity was busy. They've got all the pins for helping out in Pioneer Girls or whatever. Right? Did I not do this and do that in your name? And Jesus doesn't say you didn't try hard enough, you didn't go to church enough, you didn't give enough money. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sin and asked Jesus to be your Savior? That is the only thing that brings peace with God. The only name under heaven by which you may be saved is Jesus Christ. 
And the only way you may be saved is by God's grace secured through your faith in biblical Jesus. I urge you to remember Hebrews 10.26 in this. But if you are a Christian, and most of you are, that's why you're in a Christian church on Sunday, great. If you've asked Jesus to forgive you, then I want to remind you that, that, that you should be convinced of something. Even as we struggle with sin, if you put your faith in Jesus, you should be utterly convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any power, neither height, nor depth, nor anyone in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. You're eternally secure in Jesus. The question is, are you in Jesus? Not are you in church. Are you in Jesus? Now, while a Christian's destiny is certain, a Christian's testimony isn't. A Christian's destiny is certain. That's been secured by Christ. But a Christian's testimony is not certain. That is decided by us. Which is why we need to understand that our freedom in Christ frees us to honor Christ not live in bondage to our passions. I want you to turn with me and for just a moment in the Word of God. You're going to go to the left of Corinthians. You're going to get to the book of Romans. We're going to leave 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to go over to Romans 6. Romans 6. Leave your thumb in 1 Corinthians 6. That's our main passage, but we're going to spend a minute looking at Romans 6. Romans 6 is on page 1199 of the Blue Pew Bible. Romans 6, page 1199. Romans 6, beginning at verse 5, says this. For if we've been united with Him, that is, if you're a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, okay? If you've been united with Him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with Him in resurrection like this. And we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. All that makes total sense to the average Christian. I'm in Christ. Christ was crucified. Christ defeated sin. Therefore, I have the ability now in Christ to overcome sin. Here's the part that we're going to start to need to remember. In verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, we get that. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. And death will no longer have dominion over Him. Okay, we understand that. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. And the life He lives, He lives to God. We understand that. Now, verse 11, there's an application for the Christian. So you must consider yourself dead to sin. You must do this. And alive to God. Not in your own strength, but in Christ Jesus. So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Not in your own strength, but in the power of Christ Jesus. Let not sin reign, therefore, in your mortal body. To make it so that you have to obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as though you have been brought from death to life. And your members to God, your body to God, your eyes, your hands, all of your body as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, I find this very interesting that Paul is writing to Roman Christians. He's writing to Christians living in the city of Rome. 
And so what he's saying is that Christians need to understand that sin can still hold mastery over any believer who lets it. Did you know that? Your destiny is certain, your testimony is not. But friends, <laughs> Christians who need to understand that sin can hold mastery over any brother who permits sin to win, but you need to understand that Christ died for more than this. Why would we want to dabble in this if the payday is always a return to slavery? Being led with a hook in our mouth where we do not want to go. You follow? Involuntarily, violently, pulled along by something we came to Christ to have liberty from. The only power that should dominate a believer is the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture. Sin should never dominate our lives because God's Spirit ought to dominate our lives. Now that's really comforting because think of a whole bunch of other Scriptures that deal with temptation and start to think about the power of the Holy Spirit, your temples of the Holy Spirit. Sin should never dominate us because God's Spirit dwells within us. That means if we fight, Satan will flee. It's true. It's not just theoretical. That means greater is he who's in me than he who's in the... Yeah. That means, listen to this, no temptation has seized us except what everyone else experiences, what is common to man. And God is faithful in our temptation. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. What does that mean? Well, that means He's going to provide a way to get around it if we're willing to follow Jesus in it. But when we are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that we can stand up. Now, we don't have to take the way out, but He'll provide it. Here's the question. Are we taking those ways out? You see, too often, we fail when we're tempted and we fall into sin. Why? Because you and I would rather flirt with temptation than flee from temptation. If we actually follow what the Word of God says, you get yourself out of trouble. But we're smarter than God. We go, I'm going to get close, but I'm not going to get consumed. Friends, I've told you this before, but it's still true. Temptation is like a cobra that we keep in our drawer at home. We've hidden it. We think that we have mastery over this cobra. The cobra lulls us into thinking we can bring it out in private whenever we want a bit of entertainment because somehow we have mastery over the cobra. And so, we, we, we watch its hypnotic gyrations and we, we play our flute and it seems to dance to our tune and we smugly think, I've got this. But the Bible warns, though you think you're the snake charmer, watch out. Watch out. The cold, dead eyes of a serpent, they don't blink. They don't seem to even be necessarily fixated on you. And then there's the gentle, subtle, fascinating flicker of the forked tongue. And it is seemingly doing our bidding. We're playing the tune, and it's doing as we are playing. But that old serpent is more crafty than any beast of the field. 
And He is lulling us into a false sense of security. He's desensitizing us to the danger in front of us. There is pending peril in that plaything, and our fixation will become the object of our destruction very quickly. One day, when we've grown quite comfortable, and we think we've tamed this beast, it will suddenly lash out. And it will show its fangs that it has kept hidden behind the forked tongue. And once those poison-laden fangs get a hold of you, you're at least wounded, amen? And some brothers never recover. Many a strong saint has been felled by temptation's quick strike. No less of a strong man than Samson was undone by the wiles of sexual temptation. Read his life. He never got past this issue. Uh, No less of a spiritual giant than King David, a man after God's own heart, found a bath containing Bathsheba, something he just couldn't look away from. Right? And, And since he couldn't avert his eyes, it led to his kingdom and his country's demise. Friends, the oldest book in our Bibles is the book of Job. And in Job 4.8, Job 4.8, write it down in the margin of your Bible. Job 4.8, those who plow in iniquity reap the same. Those who plow in iniquity reap the same. The, whitest, the wisest man in the world who ever lived was Solomon. And King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 11.18, the wicked earns deceptive wages. You think you're winning. The wicked earns deceptive wages. But the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil, he will will die. The New Testament sets it out bold and clear and plain and straight in Galatians 6, 7 and 8. The Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he'll reap. And for that which he sows to his flesh, he will also reap destruction of the flesh. There's a warning in there. And that brings us to point five. Point five today. We need to understand that our freedom should not be misused so that we fall into patterns of addiction and destruction. A Christian, if he is not careful, can fall into patterns of addiction and destruction. Have you ever met a wonderful born-again man or woman of God who along the way fell into addiction and destruction. Christians are not immune from these things. Amen? Very true. Now, go back to Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6.12. What are they saying? I can do this. I'm good with this. I'm fine with this. I'm a snake charmer at this. All things are lawful for... You hear the arrogance? Paul says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, Paul. Paul says, yeah, but I'm not going to be dominated by anything. This is very much in keeping with the Romans 6.12 passage. Romans 6.12 says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its passage. You know what that means? That means that for the believer, we can let sin reign where we're supposed to have Christ reigning. This side of eternity, we can live far below our position as a Christian. Sin can become our master, and we can be led by that hook if we let it. Now, in your mind, you probably have some what that hook is, right? 
And Satan is desperately telling you right now, it's that other guy's hook. So if that other guy struggles with gambling, that's the guy who has the problem. If that other guy struggles with whatever, that's the... Think about your hook, don't think about their hook. Because you can't fix them, you just have to walk for your testimony. Sin has a myriad of flavors, doesn't it? Baskin-Robbins only has 31 flavors, and we can't walk away. Satan seems to have infinite flavor. Whatever suits your particulars, he's got a flavor for you. Now that sin can come in a bottle, it can come in a vial, it can flicker on our screen, it can dance in the industrial district, it can call out at dusk through lust, it can can be in broad daylight as as, as greed infects our trade. It it, it can be in in the break room. Breaking out in gossip and slander when we're supposed to be having supper. It can be in our living room where we begin to fixate and ruminate over and over on our problems instead of on our Savior. And so we're anxious about anything and we pray about nothing and then we're paralyzed about everything. Pick a room. He's got room to tempt you in that room. The boardroom, the break room, the bedroom, the back room, anywhere. Sin has a thousand flavors, but know this, in them all, in them all, they all seek to be your master. But you and I get to choose what masters us. So Christian, who do you want to have mastery over you this week? This week. The Lord Jesus, who doesn't allow a bruised reed to be broken or a smoldering wick to be snuffed out, or sin and Satan that come only to steal, kill, and destroy. Who will you choose this week? Friends, know this, believe this, embrace this. What starts out as an attraction and a fascination to provide a distraction becomes an unwieldy passion and it will lead to our destruction. How good of God to bless us with such great liberty, but I'm going to tell you that the enemy sows tares where the king has laid wheat. Our liberty is only good, and the enemy says, let me see if I can turn something good into something awful. So our Christian liberty has to be tempered by two important questions for the Christian. The first question I should ask myself is, is this practice helpful? Does it help me serve others and shine for Jesus? The second question is, is this practice enslaving for me? Not for everyone else, not for theoretical people. Is it enslaving for me? Am I getting sucked into this? Or or does it have the potential to, to suck me into this in such a way that I can't get back out of it? Verse 12, because everything's lawful for me, but not all things are... And, and, and all things are lawful for me, but I shouldn't be dominated by anything. This just involves reading. Feel free to read along at those points. <laughs> Tough stuff, I understand. So practically, this gets into areas we'll talk about later in Corinthians about disputable matters. But right now, I want to talk about it in the area of enslaving matters. Uh, Christians have the freedom to drink. They're just not supposed to get drunk. But there are some saints that one drink inevitably means surrender to a bender, aren't there? 
And if that's who you are, then you don't have freedom. You ought to flee from the first drink because it will always lead to being drunk. And there are other brothers that that isn't the case, and they have different freedom in these matters. It doesn't matter what the it is. It it matters, is this helpful or enslaving? So um, there are some saints where golf can lead us chipping away all day in the sand trap of life. Uh, What starts out as a hobby becomes an obsession. And one day it's an idol, and we've invested copious amounts of of time and large amounts of money in being idle. And we've let our family and our business and our witness all sink because our golf score needs to sink first. Right? Do you see how anything, there's nothing wrong with golf. Wrong when golf has mastery over the Christian. Do you follow? So that means... Food isn't bad, it's good. Sex isn't bad, it's good. They're both God-given gifts. But how we use food and sex, well, that can be bad or good. What we do with these gifts. Is it God-honoring or is it life-enslaving? So we need to understand that our, that our freedom shouldn't be misused so that we fall into patterns of, of addiction and, and destruction. And we need to honestly and routinely assess ourselves in these matters. Is this practice helpful to me? Does it enable me to serve others and shine for Jesus better? Is this practice enslaving to me? Is it starting to suck me in and take me away? Now here's the thing. Only you know the answer to those questions. In time, other people will start to figure it out. But right now, in this pew at Calvary Church, for most of you, only you know the answer to that question. So I think you and Jesus need to talk about that. Are you asking yourself regularly? Because so depends the strength of your testimony. Which brings us to point six in all this. We need to understand that what we do with our bodies is not inconsequential or incidental to Jesus. What we do with our bodies is not inconsequential or incidental to Jesus. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then, shall you take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Friends, the saints in Corinth were reared in a city that had a significant part of its economy derived from the commercial sex industry. That's just a fact. That's where they lived. Uh, The temples of Apollo and Aphrodite were visited nightly, and they filled the city's coffers plentifully. People came from all over the Roman Empire to indulge their basest instincts at the isthmus called Corinth. If there was a toged version of Hugh Hefner, he would have had a penthouse in Corinth. Do you follow? So you have these newly saved Christians who are washed, who are cleaned, who are made new in Christ. And they have this sort of twin problem. The first problem is the ubiquity and proximity of the ever-present temptation, uh, the reality of their own proclivities because they've come to Christ from a background that was probably pretty unchaste. If you were raised in Corinth, you thought like a Corinthian, right? Now, some folks think the Bible is this musty old book with unrealistic ideals from, from a time when things were quaint and rather sedate. That's a fable. It's not true. 1 Corinthians is factual. 
And the fact is, the first century world crackled and bubbled with the same temptations that run through our world and cripple our nation. Because Ecclesiastes 1.9 is true. There's nothing new under the sun. To those who thought that, that, that sex was simply uh, the fulfillment of animalistic instincts and uh, concupiscent impulses, mere food for the stomach and stomach for food, Paul reintroduces what God had said way back in the very beginning of the Bible, in the first book of the Bible, in the first few chapters of the Bible, that there's a special oneness that occurs in sexual intimacy that's true in no other interaction or category in the human experience. And Paul's words are jarring, and they're meant to be disarming, but they're very much in keeping with Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, most of the believers in Corinth, they had been pagans before they became Christians. They were Gentiles, so they had probably never heard this Bible verse ever. Think about that. So these saints probably got their understanding of human sexuality from the frivolity and carnality on display each day in ancient Corinth. Many of us are in a similar situation, aren't we? Our understanding of marriage is more shaped by Hugh Grant's romantic comedies than a rigorous exegesis of Ephesians 5. Our understanding of love owes more to the poetry of Hallmark than the Gospel of John Mark. Our understanding of sex has more to do with Skinamax than Genesis. Because we were reared here. So listen again, because what Paul is about to say to the Corinthians is probably not the way we've been taught by our culture. And therefore, it's probably not the understanding that comes to us at first glance. Verse 15, here he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, this is true metaphorically, not metaphysically for Jesus. Think about that for a second. You see, Jesus Christ is never personally tainted by our sin decisions, because he is always and forever holy, amen? Christ is unalterably and utterly holy and incorruptible. So Christ is no more metaphysically impacted by our actions than a sunbeam is somehow made dirty because it shines on the dump. You follow? So metaphysically, Jesus is not brought into our sin, but metaphorically, He is. You see, the reputation of Christ is judged by the actions of us. And it is tarnished in our dalliances and deviations. For we are His body, and when one member unites in whatever iniquity, that other person in the equation of copulation is confused as they are invariably reduced to a means to gratifying our selfish ends, instead of as a soul for which Jesus died. 
And, and the people that observe our, our actions from afar, they see us running around, they begin to conclude, well, you know what? That gospel's really of no consequence because the Christians abandoned it for the same reason we won't embrace it. We don't want a master. Apparently neither do they. If our gospel is no limitation to our animalistic infatuations, our hypocrisy regarding intimacy will give our unsaved friends vindication to reject the gospel of liberation. Amen? And that's a fact, Jack. Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we need to change our minds from, from what the world has told us to what Christ is teaching us. We need to renew our minds with truth so we can start walking in keeping with the truth. So here's the truth, verse 19. Or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your bodies. This is about as countercultural as we could get, isn't it? It's about as biblical as we could get, isn't it? Now, our politicians, and there are many talking today, tell us what I do in my private life has no impact on my public office. So yeah, I'm a scumbag to those people, but I'll be great if you elect me. Activists tell us it's my body, and I have the right to choose to do whatever I want with it. And our culture, indeed our Constitution, tells us that you have a right to life and liberty and whatever makes you happy. And there are even some supposedly Christian subcultures that teach us that we ought to strive to have our best life now. But the Scriptures teach that we ought to live our lives so as to point people to the author of life. And that means we're going to need to use our Christian liberty carefully. For we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. So let's glorify God with our bodies. And to that end, let's pray today. Amen? Lord, Your Word is so true. It was true to the pagan in Corinth who was squeezed from every angle with more than he could handle. From the day he grew up and he learned about how we relate to one another in our sexuality, the birds and the bees were seen by those coming down from the brothels that were called temples and made a monument out of excrement. And Lord, we live in a world like that. We can't sell a candy bar without something seductive implied in the innuendo. We, we are just constantly pressed, and therefore we're hard-pressed. And, and we have uh, come, many of us, from backgrounds where our understanding of many things has more to do with the world than it does with the Word. And so, Lord, as we're in this text, which is an ouch text, it's an uncomfortable text, it's a, are we done with this text yet text? We squirm because it presses where we have weakness, doesn't it? And so, Lord Jesus, we are weak and you are strong. We are unwise and you are wise. We are needy and you are giving. 
And so we're asking that you would help us this week. We can't fix last week, or last month, or last year, but this week. We could walk with you, we could strive for you, we could stand for you, we could begin to walk anew. Help us to ask ourselves the questions, is this helpful or destructive? Is this enslaving or not? For me, because there are our brothers that can very easily stand up under some of these neutral things where we indeed do have freedom. And there are others of us where these freedoms are, are, are a trap. And so, Lord, we don't need to live in the trap that someone else was afraid of falling in, that the Pharisees tell us to go beyond the Word of God and set up fences for our fences so our fences so no one goes near the final fence that you actually erected. When you showed up, you tore down all those fences and said, why do you violate the Word of God with your tradition? So we can't add to the Word of the God, but your Word does tell us that we each need to ask ourselves, though, yes, there may be freedom in this, is this freedom for me something that's helpful or is it something that's dreadful? Show us those things. Help us to walk in them. Uh, help us to be better at being overcomers this week, this month, and this year for your sake, for your testimony, and for us to be more effective witnesses in a world that needs to meet Jesus. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the